Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome for the third time Jan van Hoof, who is a Dutch biologist and was a professor of comparative physiology at Utrecht University in the Netherlands for over three decades. This episode is still part of this podcast series and as long as Jan wants to keep sharing his wisdom and stories I am so up for it and already looking forward to the next time we connect because it's just extraordinary. Thank you so much Jan for you know being on this podcast and coming on and sharing everything that you do. As you probably have already learned from the other podcasts, he not only has an excellent mind in science and teaching and in research, but is also a storyteller extraordinaire. So, you know, it's just marvelous listening to his vibrant and engaging storytelling. Also, this podcast is recorded in a slightly different way than you are usually used to, as Jan has trouble hearing. But as you know, no trouble sharing many different stories. So get some tea, have a seat, put on your shoes for a stroll or anything else you like to do when listening to a podcast and let yourself again be transported into the stories of Jan van Hoof. I had a fantastic time in England being a pupil of the Nobel Prize winner in ethology, Nico Tinbergen, who, so to speak, placed me under the guidance of a young ethologist that has finished his studies in Oxford with Nico. His name was Desmond Morris. And it gave me the opportunity to study what has been my interest from early on, namely communication behavior in animals, and especially in primates. Facial expressions. I had read Darwin, the expression of the emotions in men and animals. That was what I wanted to do. When I finished my stay in England, uh, with Nico in Oxford and with Desmond in London. I returned to Utrecht. That was in 1962. And I did my, what I at the time they called it, uh, my doctoral exam. That is, I got my master's degree. And I was, so to speak, pre-programmed uh, by my parents to come back to Arnhem to join the directorate of the Burger Zoo. But I had been away for a while and my father had become severely ill and he died a few years after when I came back, he became a... And my brother, my younger brother, Anton, 
who became later on became very famous in the Netherlands for his TV presentations as a zoo director, but that's another story. He already had taken up together with my mother, so to speak, the directorship of the zoo. And at the same time, I was put before a choice. My professor in Utrecht, Sven Dijkraaf, who was fascinated by the research that I had started in Oxford and in London, offered me a PhD position. My God, that was a chance, that was an opportunity to continue with my work on primate communication, on primate expressive behaviors. So it was decided I would accept that position and I would later on join my mother and my brother in the zoo. This was a difficult choice. And we have in Dutch a saying that is the, the donkey that is placed between mountains of hay, which one to go to. And when you are in the middle and you can't decide to go to the one or to the other, you may, under, you may end up without a decision. No, that was not the case. I choose the PhD position in Utrecht as a member of the scientific staff of Professor Sven Dijkraaf at his institute. But at the same time, I became heavily, I remained heavily involved in the Arnhem Zoo, in everything that went on. And for one thing, I became involved in television work. And that had to do with the fact that while I was in, in, uh, in London, I got the chance to make a television documentary. I think I now try to remember, was it for the BBC or was it for Granada TV? I forgot. No, I think it was for the, for the BBC. Yes. And um, that brought me into that TV world where Desmond Morris, who was my coach in Desmond in, the, in those days, uh, in, was one of the uh, pioneers also in bringing zoology programs to the British public. So um, my brother and I were offered the chance to produce a series of monthly programs on Dutch TV, which was called Zuzu. We were two young guys. It was the early days of television. I remember if you now go to the Netherlands uh, broadcasting uh, city in Hilversum, it's a city almost on its own with all the studios, the theaters and everything. We started in an old school, at least. I remember Dutch television started very primitively. And in 1964, when we made our first programs, we worked in an old school, an old school. And from there we went with 16 millimeter cine cameras to interesting locations. And it had to be recorded on film and it was cut in a studio. My God, how different the world is nowadays 
with all kind of equipment by which you can record things. Oh my, but it turned out to be a very popular program. Every Mount, my brother Anton were there on Dutch TV on a channel at nine o'clock prime time. And we made programs about animal behavior. We traveled to different zoos in Europe to show uh, interesting animals and projects at the zoos. We went to institutes abroad and in the Netherlands where we filmed the people who studied animal behavior. Very, very popular. But again, I was that donkey between two haystacks because there was the one on the one end and the other one on the other. My professor was fascinated by the fact that I did these TV presentations, but on the other hand, he asked, Jan, how is your project going? Um, uh, well, uh, dear professor, uh, it, it is going, um, but not that rapidly as you might have expected because, um, well, there are other things. Well, anyway, uh, so quit with TV work. And I quit. But my brother went home and became very famous also in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s as a presenter of all kinds of nature programs and uh, made documentaries. Well, how did I fare? Uh, I got another chance. Life is sometimes very, very unpredictable, I can tell you. Although you have the impression afterwards that you were steered into a certain direction at the moment, certain things come to you from, it seems, from nowhere, and they suddenly they are there. What was the opportunity? I had a good friend in the Netherlands, an elderly gentleman, a professor at Amsterdam University, and he was called, his name was Adrian Kotland. And he um, became well known uh, with studies that he did in the 40s and the 50s on cormorants. But later on, he turned on and wanted to study chimpanzee behavior, and he went to Africa. He did some interesting observations, but that was at a time that Jane Goodall also started, and she stayed with her chimpanzees in Gomber Natural in Gomber National Park, which became a national park later on, and lived with these chimpanzees in near contact with them. And she became very famous, as uh, probably you all know. Adrian never got that fame, but he was interested in fame in, in chimpanzee. He was known all over the world for certain things. So he was approached at a certain moment by somebody from the US Air Force. The US Air Force at the time had a research institute in the desert of New Mexico in Alamogordo, where they were preparing 
all kinds of things and doing research and study in connection with travel in space. It was the time when there was a large rivalry between the USSR, Russia, and the USA, who was the first, who would be the first to put man in space. And at the time, and now we are talking about the late 50s and the early 60s, the Russians seemed to be quite a bit ahead because somewhere at that time, and I've forgotten uh, the precise year, but I thought it was somewhere in the early 60s, they were the first to launch a rocket with a little dock inside, Laika was its name, and they made a few rounds around the Earth and came back. But um, if I remember correctly, he didn't quite survive. But anyway, it was the worst living being in space. And at that time, Americans were thinking of the same. And they thought, we are not going to use uh, dogs. We want, eventually, we want to put man in space. So let's find out to what extent the nearest relative of man, that is the chimpanzee, can be used as a animal being, we are an animal also, but as an animal that um, can survive under the extreme conditions that are associated with being in space. For one thing, having no weight, you are weightless. We had no idea, men and science had no idea what that would mean. We know now that being in space for a long time has a tremendous impact on your body, on your organization, on uh, the way your muscles maintain themselves and things like that, because there's no, no large forces working on them, no, um, no gravity working on it. Um, then the structures change. To what extent? Also, the mental aspects of being weightless and all that. So let's do experiments with chimpanzees and try to find out. And in Alamogordo, in the desert of New Mexico, there was a big institute next to a place where they launched rockets. And in that institute, they did all kinds of physiological work. And there was a colony of chimps, mind you in the desert of Alamogordo of New Mexico. And they had about a hundred chimpanzees for that purpose, for these research. And most of these were kept in beautiful, because of course it was US Air Force and it was all spick and span. There were beautiful cages, but beautiful from the technical point of view, but not from the, let's say, socio-ecological point of view because there were rows of cages and there were sitting the chimpanzees, three or four in one cage together, cages of uh, five by three by four meters. And, there were, and at the time there was a commander, a very clever man. His name was 
Colonel Catterfield. He was a uh, he, he was a, a, a medical uh, man and a biologist, and he realized that the way they kept these experimental chimpanzees there was in fact so unnatural that in living in these cramped quarters, these animals would develop uh, stereotypes and idiosyncrasies, etc. And he thought, no, if you want to have the chimpanzee as a model of man in space conditions, not only the physiological, the anatomical, but also the emotional, motivational, and psychological aspects, you want to study that under the conditions of space, you have to have animals that are psychologically healthy, in good shape. And chimpanzees are group living animals, social animals, which, which get their stimulation from the social environment they live in. So let's form a natural social unit. And he founded and built a, what he called a chimpanzee consortium. It was a large building, but in a occasional large inner hole where they could keep the chimpanzees. And then there was a piece of desert with desert shrubs, which was surrounded by a big boat. And the animals could walk hundreds of meters far away into the desert, couldn't escape because chimpanzees can't swim and they couldn't get out of there. But mind you, these black chimpanzees, black chimpanzees with their black coats walking in the desert under the heat sun, it was a far cry from the African jungle. But nevertheless, they had the shelters and whatever, etc. But Colonel Cretterfield, the colonel, the scientific supervisor, supervisor of the project, wanted also to follow the social development of about a 30 animals that he put together in that room. They all came as individuals, fours or five from a cage in which they were living together. And now they were suddenly joined together in that spacious area, but put together, it wasn't a group. How would that work out? In fact, he would like to have somebody studying that. And um, somebody who was familiar with chimpanzee behavior. Now, Adrian Cortland, uh, was asked whether he could do that. No, Adrian couldn't. He was too old for that and he had other interests. But he said, okay, I know a young man. He grew up in a zoo. He's quite familiar with uh, animals. He studied chimpanzees. He might be the one to do that. So on a certain morning in 1966, I found myself uh, traveling to Frankfurt Military Airport. And I was... Uh, loaded into a big transport plane on which there were all kind of canvas shares, shares and whole families of American military who had spent their time in Frankfurt with the, with the American occupation forces 
of Germany and who returned home were flown back to Philadelphia. I think it was McGuire Air Force Base. And I found myself sitting in that big transport plane between families with crying infants, little children, etc., all returning to the United States. I thought, my God, what an adventure I'm going into. Anyway, that was one of the most interesting flights I ever had. Um, I couldn't look outside because there were, there were no windows in the plane. Um, I went, uh, finally ended a long story short, in New Mexico, Alamogordo, and I saw the chimpanzees in their very beautiful but very unnatural quarters. But all the merits to Dr. Colonel Tretterfield for doing this, because he saw that this was the way to work with chimpanzees. And I was greatly inspired by looking at the developing social relationships in that chimpanzee colony. And I made an ethogram of these chimpanzees. I recorded carefully all the, the social interactions and the conditions under which they showed these interactions, uh, etc. And it would be later part of my PhD project, my thesis, which I would defend uh, six years later in Utrecht at Utrecht University, my promoter being again my old professor Sven Dijkhardt. But there was still a long time to go. I came back into Utrecht after about uh, 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 three months with a treasure of data, of observational data, and a lot of good memories of staying there at the Air Force Base because it had its charming adventures. I was watching the chimpanzees from a first story observation room where I could look on one side in the inside hole where the animals were living, but they were not outside or when it was too hot outside, and from the other window onto the big desert island. I was, at one point, I was working out my notes which I had collected, I was sitting behind my desk, and I suddenly heard a tremendous noise. Chimpanzees screaming and, 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 and barking, but it didn't come from the compound in which they were living, it came from outside. So I looked into the window, I didn't see any chimpanzees. I went to the other side, and bending and looked side, and I saw the parking area of the Air Force Base. And there was a crowd of 20 chimpanzees had broken loose for some reason or another, some stupid keeper who had left open the door, and they were walking onto the parking lot. Now, this was fascinating, because I remember Samson, who was the big leading male, and I remember, I think it was Albert, which was the second male. I forgot the names of these animals. And there were big, huge mills. And you had, at the time, you had these big, flat American automobiles, which were 100 meters wide and 200 meters long and only 10 centimeters high, you know, these flat things. And they stood there, hundreds of them in the parking place. Oh, for the chimpanzees, that was heaven. 
because they jumped on these cars and chimpanzees like to jump in the forest. They have these drum buttresses on which they jump and they make these rhythms. And they stamp on that. Oh, this was fun. And the people from the institute and from the labs came rushing outside and were amused. And you could immediately recognize those who had their cars on the on the parking lot because they stood in awe and, and completely in despair and saw how the roofs of their beautiful hardtop uh, big American cars were lowered by the incessant drumming and jumping of the chimpanzees on the roofs. This was fascinating. Anyway, I had a great time. I came back with a lot of beautiful data and worked that out. And eventually in 1972, I would study that. But I came back to Arnhem and I saw my mother and my brother who in the meantime had uh, fully adjusted. My father had died as the director of the zoo and I was happy to be more to go to the science side and to finish my PhD and see what would come on my way after that. Um, I came back to my brother and my mother and I said, well, we have a couple of chimpanzees in our zoo. We have Julie, an old female, which my father, at a certain point in the early 50s, took over from a circus because he became too old. She, I will say, became too old to perform. And when I think back of that period, I feel full of shame still because Julie was housed in the zoo in an old fashioned cage with steel bars and he was sitting there, she was sitting there and sitting there on her own alone. Because at the time there wasn't another adult sympathy to join her with. And so her best friend was my father who could do everything with her. She was very tame. Nevertheless, on the, on the fence of the case, there was a big board saying uh, to prohibit that people would try to make up contact with the chimpanzee because you could go up to the bars and uh, said, very dangerous. She had to find, oh, I feel still so ashamed if I think back of the way we kept that animal at that time. It had to make its own amusement. And it has a very particular way to get, to, to create some amusement for itself. Because it waited always till there was public. It interacted with the public. And when there was public, it would go to the metal, uh, metal slide, which separates the outside uh, cage from the inside. And she would start drumming on that slide. And that would, was interesting because it showed that chimpanzees have a certain idea of rhythm and they enjoy making something rhythmic to um, to 
whether you hear what I'm going to do now. I'm going to imitate drumming. So the chimpanzee would go like this. Do you hear this? And then it would go faster, 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 faster. Now that was fascinating. And people enjoy that. But he had she, I always must remember she. Julia had another interesting thing. In the morning, when she was left in her outside case, she left her droppings, her features, she caught them when she pooped. And she put them in the back of the case all on a row. And they would lie there. And you would wonder what she was going to do with it. She waited till the visitors, a new bunch of visitors came and stood in front of her cage. And then she would walk quite inconspicuously to the back of her cage, pick up one of her droppings, one of her poop droppings, and walk at ease to the front of the cage, to the bars where the public was standing, and then suddenly she would throw such a handful of features right into the public. And the public would shout and scream and jump back, but there was always one who was a victim and who had it. Now, that was bad luck for the one who was hit. It was great joy and great fun for all those who watched this. And of course, people would go, and the one so who had seen it would wait because visitors would move away and a new bunch of visitors could come up. And the ones who had experienced it would wait and, and see what would happen again. And the interesting thing was that Julie was quite um, selective in the members of the public, which she chose to throw her droppings to. Um, I remember at one point there was an old man coming and he had a very long white beard and he was standing in the crowd of the public that was watching and waiting what would happen uh, next. I was watching Zipazi. And of course, Julie wouldn't throw her features to anybody. No, she selected certain people that stood out in the crowd. The man with the, with the beard, he would get it. And of course, also, uh, most of the Dutch public circle in the early 50s were whites. And when somebody, an Asiatic or an African person came, of course, he would be the conspicuous one for Julie. And he would, so Junie made her choices on the basis of an interesting member of the public. Yes, you'll have it. But it was a shame. The way we kept these chimpanzees. And later on, we didn't keep them anymore. But then I come home from Alamogordo, from New Mexico, and I said to my mother and to my brother, I want us to have chimpanzees again, but not the way we used to do that, to keep them. I want to have chimpanzees as a social group, 
as social beings, as a social unit of 20 or more animals forming a community. That is what a chimpanzee is. It's a member of a community. And so in this way, you should show them and not in a cage, because also in the most zoos, okay, the bar cages had gone and they had make a terrace or something behind the ditch or so. But it was uh, a few 10 meters and that was it. No, I would like to see them on a big island, a big island where they could sit on one end of the island with shrubs in it and plants in it. And uh, if they were sitting on the other side of the island at uh, uh, something, something like 100 meters away, where the one who was sitting here on the one end could see perhaps that there was one sitting on the other hand, but out of reach, sufficiently out of reach to recognize his facial expressions. So they might be socially apart. And that was the idea. And that was the beginning of the famous Arnhem chimpanzee colony. That was opened in, was it 1971 or 72? It was 70, my gosh, I, uh, I tried to remember, I forgot. Um, um, let's have it 72, yes, it was. And I remember we got 25 chimpanzees. Now, if you want to set up a social community of these animals, and I was aware of that quite clearly, that a community is something that grows, that you can't make, it has to grow. And there are all kinds, of, it is a set of relationships. It's a pattern of relationships and that has to develop. Now, the ideal thing would be to collect a group from the wild with all its social traditions and to have that in a beautiful environment in a captive surroundings. But of course, we refused even to think of that possibility because that was out of the question. We didn't want to do that. No, we thought it must be possible to gather, to collect chimpanzees from all kinds of sources in captivity where they are surplus or so. And we try to make and form a natural social community out of that. So there came surplus animals from other zoos. Uh, most zoos had problems with, for instance, adult animals, which were difficult to accommodate with other adult animals. Um, we got uh, some surplus animals from a circus, from circus. Um, I remember we got one from Holiday on Ice that proved to be, that had been an excellent skater. She could skate in the Holiday on Ice show. She was shown to the group. And in 1972, these animals were introduced to one another. 
Now, again, no experience. How do you join a group of animals, chimpanzees, social animals, but that do not know each other? We expect tension. We might expect fights and all that kind of thing. And we thought of, shall we, all 25, introduce individually one to another, let them get accustomed to one another, and then expand the group of, but that would take months, if not years, to do that. So we thought, no, each of these animals, if they meet all the others at the same time, it meets a majority of strangers. And the animals that had come to Arnhem came in singles or duos or trios, which no knew at the most one or two or three others. So they meet a bunch of strangers and all of them will be intimidated by the strangers. And that will be the best way to, uh, to introduce them to one another. So they will be forced to start out from a minority position in each case. And this is how we did it. And it has worked out well. Of course, in the beginning, there were fights and there was tension in the groups because they had to get accustomed to one another. But what was predicted by the then director of the Amsterdam Zoo artists who heard of the idea of my mother, my brother, and me to form a natural group of chimpanzees in captivity, a group of 25 animals. He said, mind you, if you do that, I promise you that will be blood and tears because this will be fight. I guarantee you that will never succeed. Not, but we said, we have it's not your artist Amsterdam small uh, enclosure you're, where they can walk 10 steps and then they're at the other end of the zoo. It will be a forested island where they will live. Okay, don't believe that. Well, to cut a long story short, it worked. It became a natural group. And the first young animals, chimpanzees were born only uh, four or five years later. Yes, four or five years later. Um, that was an adventure in itself because the group consisted of animals who had no experience with raising young. First of all, some of them had no experience with how to deal with a member of the other, of the other sex etc the mills all that had to be developed and i remember the first youngsters that were born in that colony were neglected by their mothers and i can vividly picture a scene where a young chimpanzee was born in arnhem just one of the forest and the mother gave birth in one of the cages inside I should interrupt my story in this respect 
that first now explain how did the setup look like? I told you it consisted of a large island surrounded by a, a moat, which the animals couldn't cross. And there was an inside building where the animals were kept inside at night and also with very bad weather and in winter conditions. And there were two big holes, big holes of some, some, uh, some 20 meters by uh, 10 meters and with climbing structures and all of that in it. And apart from that, there was a unit of smaller cages inside where the animals could be put into their own cages. And they knew after a while that this is my cage. I have to go in there. When they came from the outside, from the island at night, they would go into their cages. Or when they were in the big hall, they knew also. So one of these pregnant mothers was sitting in one of these individual cases. What is it? And I remember when she gave birth, we were there immediately to see it. And she was sitting up two and a half, three meters, no more, four meters high in the cage on a little shelf. And she looked with in great amazement at what was lying down there on the floor of the cage in the hay that we had provided. There was a little baby chimpanzee screaming, screaming, screaming. And the mother was looking from above and she didn't go there. It was obvious. This was a mother which was, it was completely strange to her. And we always tend to think, oh gosh, animals, they know instinctively what to do. Oh yes, and we also, we humans know instinctively what to do. Oh yes, but instincts have to be developed. And a chimpanzee in nature is surrounded by others who are elder. And are always mothers which carry a youngster and we suckle and we, uh, we nourish a youngster. So it's her being familiar with it they see their brothers, sisters, nephews grow up and being cared for. Um, so we had to, to teach them how to raise youngsters. And in the beginning, it didn't work out that nicely because the baby was deserted. And when we put it back, it didn't work. The mother wanted to accept it. So you had to take it out. And then there was the only solution to bottle feed it and to raise it. And sometimes a baby was placed with one of the keepers in their family if they wanted to do that at home. But my wife, Anz, my late wife, and I have raised about five chimpanzees, young chimpanzees in our home. And our own children uh, were at the time where uh, my eldest at the time was uh, six years old. And I had a, a younger son and a younger daughter were even younger. They grew up with chimpanzees in our home. Now, I can tell you, 
this is great fun, but also it creates its problems. Because, mind you, I was going to tell you about the history of the colony, but I will return to that in a minute. But there are many things to be told. But let me first finish with this story because it's so fun. My dear wife, I remember that I phoned her from Arnhem where I was staying. I said, Arms, uh, what would you think of having another baby? Oh my God. Um, no, no, I mean, you adopt a baby. Uh, who, why, who, how? I've got a baby chimp. Would you like to take care of that? Well, let's see what happened. So I came with the baby chimp. I mean, made from an old cotton, cotton box, a nice cradle. And then we put it and she got some tissue and old clothes because the chimpanzee wants to get hold of something. It's little hands and feet grasp for something to clasp. And uh, if you're losing the fingers and the feet from something to get clasped, she starts to scream. Ah! And she wants to be picked up and then she wants to get let loose. My children were delighted. And indeed, the chimp was bottle fed. And uh, it grew up. And it must say, it's great fun to raise a chimp in your home. Not only, and I must be very careful when I say this, because people will immediately come and ask me, uh, tell me, where can you buy them? Uh, because this sounds fascinating. Um, and the last thing I would like to do is to stimulate people to say, okay, it's great fun to have a chimpanzee at home. Yes, at a particular point, but there's also uh, a great responsibility because chimpanzees are no pets, are not pets. They are natural animals. They are not a dog or a cat. Domesticated animals you can, but they have been adapted during ages to interacting with humans. After a year, a chimpanzee is a toddler and then it becomes, uh, it goes up and it has its own will and its own interests. So at that time, you have to decide, you want to prevent that the little chimpanzee gets completely imprinted on human beings, that he sees humans as his social fellows. No, he has to accept that other chimpanzees has our social fellows. And in the natural situation, of course, that comes naturally, but then you have to introduce an animal which has been become habituated to humans back to his own kind. And that's a problem. That's a they're separate stories. But anyway, we had chimpanzees in the home. Um, my wife, uh, when the children went to school, she had a chimpanzee at home. She put it to sleep uh, in a little cradle. And, uh, but she had to go shopping. So she got a little, how do you call it, a push cart, uh, a baby wagon, and she put it there. And because it was cold occasionally, in, I remember in, in, in autumn, the first one, and uh, the, the little chimp had 
baby clothes on to keep it warm under and she carried her a pram to the supermarket and left the pram in the entrance hall at Zuckerberg, put it in a corner and took her, her shop cart to do her shopping. And she would, when she came back, she would find people standing above the pram and looking into the pram and talking to one another and saying, what is this? What is this? She remembered that she once came back and a woman looked at her and said, what happened to your child? Was he born like that? This, this, this child has misformed, malformed? No, my lady, this is not a human child. This is a chimpanzee, this is an ape. Oh my God, this is an ape. And you carried it for nine months and then it turned out to be an ape? What happened? Um, well, anyway, strange, uh, strange things. We went cycling on Sundays in the forest, in the autumn forest. Um, we, we are Dutch, so we cycle a lot. And my children went on, on children's cycles, Beyonders and, and I, daddy and mommy went on our adult cycles, but we had, uh, 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 you don't see that in Australia, I didn't think so, and also not in Kenya, and probably also not in Canada. Uh, but you have a little seat in the, on, the, on the cycle, in which you can put your toddler, and you go cycling. That is, if you walk, cycle along a Dutch road, you see parents with their infants on the cycle, and next to them are their small toddlers on little infant cycles, which pedal. Americans are baffled and they think this is impossible that you do that. But anyway, then we had the little chimp. I remember it was George, yeah, George, George in English, George was sitting in front in the infant seat and we walked, I mean, in, in the Netherlands, you have beautiful cycle paths through the forest, uh, one and a half meters wide and uh, coming cyclists from the opposite, and you meet one another, and you look at one another, and there was this little chimp sitting in the infant chair, but people, people looked at it, and most people didn't notice it, and then we had passed them, and they were behind us already, some 50 meters, and then you suddenly you hear a scream. Anthony, did you see that? Did you see, what was that on that chair? I suddenly realized, what was that? And then we hear the conversation uh, removing itself and they cycled on the other way around. But um, okay, and then we were sitting at a restaurant or at a, at a terrace where we took a consumption and the, the children had a cookie or what, and Shores was sitting on my answers lap and got also a little thing. But we soon learned not to do that because it means you gathered crowds around you. Anyway, it was fun, but it is also a great responsibility because these animals tend to be fixated on humans, habituated to humans. And there is a point, and it is after one year, it's the easiest 
later on, it becomes more and more difficult that you have to get them habituated to their conspecifics to other chimpanzees. And there are several ways to do that. One way is to try to find other chimpanzees that are juveniles, infants, and to bring them together in a little group and to raise them together in that group and to let them form a natural community growing up and then they can place them by adults. We have also at one point, we have tried to reintroduce a young chimpanzee which had been taken away from a mother who didn't accept it, reintroduce it to another mother chimpanzee who didn't have a youngster, but whom we knew was interested in a young infant. And we had introduced it to another chimpanzee as a foster mother and got her to accept it. But of course, she didn't produce milk herself. So we had to teach that female chimpanzee how to bottle feed her own young. She came to the keepers three times, four times a day to collect a bottle of milk, milk that was specially prepared, human baby milk, in fact, um, for, which is the best to uh, have for chimpanzees. She collected that bottle. We had first to teach her to train her, and that was not an easy thing not to drink the bottle herself, to empty it herself, the, 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 the mother chimpanzee did. <laughs> so she had to be trained to give it to the infant that she had adopted. And uh, well, these things with chimpanzees go wonderfully well. So this is the Arnhem chimpanzee colony, which gradually, gradually grew into a natural social community. And nowadays it is a fantastic community, very natural in its behavior, no stereotypic behaviors, no indications of any psychopathology or something, nothing. That took a while. It took, let's say, a couple of years before it had the, I shouldn't say relaxed social atmosphere because it's a natural social atmosphere. And the natural social atmosphere is not only always relaxed, it also has its tensions. There is positive social interactions, there is friendship and love between these animals. I use these words intentionally and, uh, and, and, and quite consciously, because in terms of their emotions, chimpanzees are very much like us. But there are also the tensions, there's the jealousy, there's the competition, there's the rivalry. And that can sometimes take a heavy form. They can bite, they have canines, which are quite a bit, at least in the males, quite a bit longer and stronger than, than in our case. And they can wound, inflict wounds on one another. 
But on the whole, it is certainly nowadays a very relaxed and peaceful social unit. Uh, some people say, may well be. And one of the criteria for judges what they are at ease is when they finally get youngsters and after a while they rear their own youngsters. Nowadays, there are no births in the colony with a, monk, with, a, with a mother that refuses to accept her infant. The females in the group have become accustomed to seeing other mothers caring for an infant, nursing it, carrying it, and it now comes quite naturally. You could say, okay, they know this to do this instinctively. <laughs> no, instincts, let me put it in what some uh, psychologists may think of us, is a contradiction in terminus. No, I use it consciously. Instincts have to be learned. Instinctive behavior is not something that comes automatically. It has to develop under the influence of experiences. It matures, etc. So do not think in terms of instinct, culture, dichotomy. That is simple, naive, and uh, etc. So the mothers in our chimpanzee group learned gradually to to raise our own infants. The whole of the behavior in the colony uh, has an atmosphere of naturalness. I'll still, still come to talk about one of my most famous students that studied the, um, the, uh, the chimpanzee colony. He became known for a book which was called um, Chimpanzee Politics. His name is Franz Mal. He became a professor in the United States and is an expert on chimpanzee behavior. But he started out as a student, as a PhD student, uh, in my uh, university group. So after the initial period in which there was tension in the group and in which they, the animals didn't quite know how to deal with one another because each of them met a bunch of strangers, but gradually natural relationships developed. And after a couple of the, a couple of years, after a few years, it had become a natural social unit. In the next pod, uh, podcast, I will talk on the behavior of this colony, the natural behavior. May I end this podcast? with just one thing about chimpanzees in captivity. I met people who said, it is unnatural to keep these animals, even if they have the beautiful pseudo natural surroundings that you have created for them in the Arnhem Zoo, to keep them in captivity. 
it is unnatural um, and it is therefore ethically unacceptable because these animals have to live unconstrained in the wild. I think that is a complete misconception about animal nature and animal life and the life of, because animals live just like we in an environment that offers incentives for satisfying natural behaviors in which the natural tendencies can express themselves in which the satisfactions that make life worthwhile are offered, are possible. Nevertheless, they shouldn't be uh, refrained from um, moments of tension, moment of fear, because life has both aspects. Life may be boring if there is nothing that excites you, nothing that arouses you. And in the social atmosphere, it's relations with conspecifics. But living together in a group, these chimpanzees experience the odds, the ills and the wealths of social life, the satisfactions, but also the tensions. And uh, if you want, the fears and the stresses of social life. I mean, having a conflict is in itself is dreadful. And if the conflict cannot be resolved, it is indeed very dreadful. And I will in the next one of our next podcasts, I will talk about how animals deal with conflicts, how they resolve conflicts, how chimpanzees do that. Because social life has its nice things and the things which you want to avoid. But it is the pepper and the salt in social life which makes so social life worthwhile to live. Otherwise, it would be boring, boring. Yeah, but some critics will say, nevertheless, you keep them in captivity. They cannot decide where to go. Well, the thing is, are they happy in the possibilities that they have at this moment. I can give you one anecdote to close this whole story up. About um, a year and a half after the sympathy colony was founded, something happened that Desmond Morris, when he came to visit the sympathy colony, he opened it, it in fact. Uh, he was the one who opened it. Um, he said, I'm just curious what happens. Chimpanzees are very inventive. You have a, a water-filled ditch around it. Will they invent the boat? No, they can't, because for a boat you have to need materials, which as you have trees in the, and the will, branches will break up. And that is what happened. Branches broke up and they break up branches and they can use that. Perhaps not a boat, but they may make a bridge. 
across the ditch and then suddenly they will be on the other side or on one side of the cage there is a big wall a four meters high wall outside of the area where the public is and they might invent the ladder <laughs> the ladder well they did they did at one point there was a big branch that had fallen off a tree and too late the keepers discovered that it had been lying around and then at a certain moment a couple of chins drag it to the wall put it up against the wall and within a couple of minutes all 25 chimpanzees were outside the cage outside their island and stood on the public walkway and of course the public saw the chimpanzees walking on the walkway and they well they didn't did expect that this was an abnormal so i remember that some mother said to the children oh come come on come on come, come here come and look there look these chimpanzees can run free oh how interesting let's go to them and then they saw suddenly saw the keepers coming about running in panic and say get away get away and then the people realized the public realized that this was not the normal and the natural situation so then there was a big stampede of all the visitors back to the entrance to the exit of the zoo but there were 25 chimpanzees loose into the zoo and they had the time of their lives because they split up a little parties and they went to all parts of the zoos and uh, some of them discovered the restaurant and we had just turned this was uh, mind you this was um, mid 70s we had just turned that into a self-service restaurant now one thing we didn't need to explain to chimpanzees the principle of self-service because they discovered that quite soon and it took us an, a whole day to clear up the mess that they created there but it was it was great fun but then what do you do if 25 chimpanzees run loose into your zoo start with capture guns and things like that to sedate them no uh, drive them back to the place where they came from <laughs> that's the last thing <laughs> of course because they go all places and they find trees to climb on and they find roofs to climb on they're gone no simple put open all the doors from the chimpanzee enclosure um, see that the evening males are in the night quarters and wait 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 because half past four the first ones came back on from the zoo and walked into the open doors into the onto the compound and walked slowly and gradually into the night quarters up to their daily dish and so they came from different parts of the zoo and at about half past five, all were inside, except for a few who had lost their way into the zoo, in the zoo. And I remember one of our collaborators, Jupp Wensing, 
uh, walked around the zoo to see whether there were any missing still and where he found them. And yes, he met, there was one adult female missing and he walked up to her somewhere in a distant part of the zoo, took her by the hand and walked her back towards the night quarters. And that was quite an adventure for you because in walking back with her, he discovered an awful, a lot of things about chimpanzee uh, interests because he walked with them and they came past the deer. And he had, uh, I forgot which chimpanzee it was, but it doesn't matter. He had her by the hand and the chimpanzee stopped him and waited and wanted to shoot the deer. But they quickly walked up. But Joop said afterwards, what was interesting, certain animals the chimp was interested in. I walked a visitor of the zoo. The chimp was a visitor of the zoo and I walked it around and she showed me what was her interest. So we went to the elephants and she wouldn't want to go away from the elephants. She was fascinated by the elephant. And the elephants were, of course, fascinated by the chimpanzee because they started trumpeting and playing their trumpets. And uh, the chimpanzee uh, even wanted to go further. And then they came alongside the leopards. And these were fascinating. But the giraffes didn't interest her at all. And so he could have written a book, um, Chimpanzee Zoology. The chimpanzee's attitude to the natural world. What does a leopard mean to a chimpanzee, etc. Now that book has never been published, I'm ashamed to say, but um, it was a tremendous experience. So at that point they were all inside when Yup had the levator also with her friends in the inside. So there's one moral to be taken for those people who said, you shouldn't take, keep these chimpanzees in, in, in a captive situation like this. First of all, the chimpanzees don't know. They have never had a lecture about captivity. A people's home is his castle. Home is where you're, we have a saying in Dutch, um, no, it doesn't matter. Um, you feel at home there where you, you experience your life goes on and where you have your satisfactions, where you, have, where you live in your own soap opera with all its social implications, where you have your satisfactions. So I dare say, that Arnhem chimpanzees are happy. They live in their own world. They're happy, not always. Sometimes they are very unhappy, but that is part of it too, because there is envy, there is jealousy, they have quarrels. And sometimes the keepers want them to do things that at that moment they don't want to do. In that respect, they are as happy as the usual happy human was told by his boss to do that 
although Alba at that moment would lie on the beach in the sun, or he is ordered by his wife to do that, whereas he rather would be with a pilsen in his hand, lying in front of the TV screen. No, life is all those things that come to you and you like, and all those things where you try to find out how do, do I cope with that? Can I get around it? And how do I escape the things? At, and if not, well, I have to adapt, I have to accept. Chimpanzees in arm have to do all that all day, but mostly they're happy. They put up branches to get into the trees, to pluck leaves from the branches. They, um, and of course, uh, we also keep them busy because we, uh, we put mice, corn, uh, throw it into the case. If they come out in the morning, they can go and forage and to find where there are interesting things to be seen. Indeed, I dare say, yes, I feel fully justified. It is unnatural. No, 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 no. Let me use the right words. The way they live is not natural, but it is as natural as natural can be. Okay, there are some things which they haven't got. They don't have to feel leopards. They don't have, and some of these things, I think it's nice that they haven't got them. Although we occasionally give them the stress that is associated with it. The famous experiment was when we, in connection with some kind of an, an, another experiment, we had a, um, a opgezette leeuw, how do you say? A, um, a, 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 a lion, a stuffed lion. And it could move its head because there was an electromotor in it. And we had it on the outside of the cage of the chimpanzee cage behind a little uh, wall, which is outside the ditch. And then we tore it into a, uh, by a rope into, into position where the chimps who were on the island, dispersed on the island, could the principal see it. And suddenly on the edge of the cape, there was a lion. Now, of course, chimps don't know what a lion is and have never seen a lion, but it is a strange animal and it stares at them and the head of the thing, there was a little mechanism in it, could, uh, could not and shake. So it was a quasi living thing. And suddenly there's great excitement. The first one discovered it, runs towards it, screams and yells, and the others are alarmed and come running also towards it. And they start picking up stones and picking up branches and throwing it at the lion. And until they gradually find out that the lion acts in a very predictable way and does do nothing and, it does, and they lose their interest. Gosh, excitement. They have been terrified, excited, natural. It is natural. It is the whole of the situation is, of course, not as it occurs. But the point is, 
what is natural is what offers all the satisfactions and all the impulses, etc., that they uh, that they would normally deal with. Let's say not natural is not necessarily unnatural. Not natural is it doesn't occur in nature. Unnatural, I would say, is not in line with natural inclinations of the animal and natural attitudes. And in this respect, these chimpanzees and arnhems who live a natural life, not in nature, but not unnatural. Thank you very much. Again, the end of another wonderful, wonderful podcast. And it's just extraordinary for me, just connecting with him, hearing all his stories, just hearing the details, the observations, the, the historical perspectives, the cultural perspectives, and how he acted and thought and interacted then, what he thinks now. And it's just really wonderful. And you know, if I have to believe, Jan, there's probably at least another four or five of these episodes coming. So stay tuned. So thank you again so much, Jan. And as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself so you can be and feel at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare and other goals that you are motivated for such as conservation, education, research, or engagement. And POS, the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform, is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice, as well as planetary well-being through the lens of the Earth Charter and the combination of the Sustainable Development Goals. So you can get continued education, tools and resources so you and the animals you care for and conservation efforts you're engaged in, everyone can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description and to become a member today.